guys are quickly turning into first service because they talk and talk and talk. So that's a good thing. It's a good thing. Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Second Peter. We're in Second Peter chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 21. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 12 to 21 this morning. <clears throat> Pray my voice holds out. It made it through first service. I think we'll be all right for second service, but I start whispering, then you'll know. <laughs> He's losing. Peter writes, starting in verse 12, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth, Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For you received from God the Father honor and glory, When such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The title of my message this morning is, It's Time to Remember. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning, knowing, Lord, that you are present in our midst, Lord, knowing that it's your desire to speak to our hearts through your word. And so we pray, Lord, that we would have open ears to receive all that you have for us this morning. Father, we thank you that that you have for us not only information, but application in our lives that can use to change our lives and draw us closer to you. We also pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that has joined us that is yet to surrender their hearts and lives to you, they're not born again yet. We pray that you'd especially touch their heart this morning. So we thank you for this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, three elderly men, they're at the doctor's office for a memory test. And the doctor says to the first man, what is three times three? 274, was his reply. Well, the doctor says to the second man, it's your turn. What's three times three? Tuesday, replied the second man. The doctor says to the third man, okay, your turn. What's three times three? Nine, says the third man. That's great, said the doctor. How did you get that? Simple, said the third man. I subtracted 274 from Tuesday. How about this one? One more. Three older ladies who were discussing the hassles of dealing with their memory loss as they got older once said, sometimes I catch myself with a jar of mayonnaise in my hand in front of the refrigerator and I can't remember whether I need to put it away or start making a sandwich. The second lady chimed in, yes, sometimes I find myself on the landing of the stairs and can't remember whether I was on my way up or on my way down. The third one responded, well, I'm glad I don't have that problem. Knock on wood. After she knocked her knuckles on the table, she rose up and said, I'll get it. It must be the door. 
It's an amazing thing that this brain that God has given to us, the human memory, moves faster than light. Through the memory, I can be instantly transported to my past, even my distant past. And it's interesting how an old song you listen to maybe on the radio, it's an instant flashback. You know, we have Alexa now at our home. I've shared with this before. I'm listening to all the kinds of music. What about songs from 1967? And what comes on? Light my fire. Come on, baby, light my fire. I'm immediately back in my cousin's 1967 red and black Dodge Charger with a 383 engine. I mean, this thing is like, oh, yeah, I remember. Singing that in the back seat of the car. Oh, this is so cool. Why? Because that's what memories do. They bring you right back to a point in your life. God has given us memory so we can remember things. And isn't it great to know that, that God doesn't have to remember because God never forgets. Aren't you glad that God never forgets? Oh, Lord, I just thank you. Who are you again? God doesn't do that, you know. My problem is I learn things and I forget the things that I've already learned and I, I have to learn them all over again, you know, it's like Scripture. You, think, you memorize Scripture, oh, I got this one down, and you go to say, oh, wait, I've got to learn that again. I've got to twist it a little bit. It's because our minds have been affected by sin. We forget the things we should remember and remember the things we should forget. Well, Peter, in this section of Scripture, is all about reminding us to remember. What's important? Three times in verses 12 through 15, Peter uses the word remind. Verse 12, I will not be negligent to remind you. Verse 13, to stir you up by reminding you. Verse 15, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder And so because of that, if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to look at the three things that Peter's reminding us. Number one, time is short. Number two, Jesus is real. And number three, God's word is true. Now, I think before we get to our first point, let's remember what we've already looked at so far in verses 1 through 11. Look at verse 1 of, or verse 3 of chapter 1. We're told that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, God has fully equipped us to live godly lives. We're told in verse 4 that God has given us exceedingly great and precious promises. And that they find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ because uh, He's in us and we are in Him. Then in verse 5, Peter says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add your faith, virtue. The word add in verse 5, if you remember from last time, it meant to lavishly supply. It was a a term that the financial backers of the Greek plays would give the actors and musicians and singers uh, when they needed someone to to, uh, help fund the production. In other words, you can hold nothing back. That's what Peter is saying here. Given this faith, go forward, grow in using the resources that God has given to us. What resources? We looked at those. Verse 5. God has lavishly supplied to you virtue, Knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, and perseverance, and godliness, and brotherly kindness, and, and love. Then he says in verse 8, For if these things are yours and abound, you will be, neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowledge of who Jesus is and what he came to do and what he calls each one of us to do will be fruitful in that. Then he says in verse 9, For you relax these things as short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you'll never stumble. So then because of all of this, Peter then says in verse 12, For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. For this reason. 
For all that he just said, it's time for, for me to remind you, even though you are mature in the Lord, even though you are established in the faith, I still need to remind you. That word established means steadfast, unmovable. Now, why does Peter say this? Well, because the theme in Second Peter is false teachers. And we're going to get to that next time in chapter 2, but Peter wants to address those who would deny the Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ. But you see, part of my job as, as a pastor and your job as a parent to your children is to remind them of things that they already know, right? To, to, uh, to stir up in you, to awaken your heart. Because it's not how much you know that counts, it's what you do with what you know that matters. I mean, if you're a Sunday school teacher, a parent, an elder, or anyone else who wants to be used by God in ministry, this is a huge point. Because the key to ministry is putting people in remembrance of things that they already know. Helping them put into practice things that God has already showed them. It's how well you understand the basic truth and how deep they sink into the soil of your soul. Why? Well, that brings us to point number one, because time is short. You know, if you've, never, if you've ever had a near-death experience, maybe a heart attack or a serious car accident, been there, done that a couple times, but suddenly God rescues you. You realize how short time really is. You see, we're established in the faith. We're walking our relationship with the Lord. But understand, this could be your last day on earth. Peter knew that his life was very short. I mean, it's likely that, that he was about 70 years old. He knew that he was, he was about to die, very likely riding in a prison. And he's using whatever time he has left to get these truths, to remind us of these truths. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says this, Yes, I think it is right, as long as I'm in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. See, Peter, nearing his death, wanted to stir up the believers in verse 13. It means to rouse from your sleep. It means to, to shake someone, to wake them up. It's like grabbing them by their shoulders and saying, you need to wake up. Now, certainly Peter knew what it was like to fall asleep on the Lord. It was like he was always being busted for sleeping on the job. Now, it's funny, you know, from my perspective and for pastoring for some 19 years, I know what it's like when it gets kind of warm in the sanctuary and it gets kind of, you know, quiet a little bit. And you start, you start to see that old head bob moving. You know, it's like, you know, and, and, and you know, I'm going to be late. Okay, I'm, I'm awake, I'm awake, I'm awake. You know, I, I, I've been there. I know what it's like. You know, especially with the time change this morning. You guys are going, I shouldn't be here for another hour. But, but, but you're here. You know, and you're praying, oh, oh, pastor, just pray so I can close my eyes just for a few moments of rest. I know what it's like. I've been there. I remember times during the sermon that the pastor would use words like, wake up, you know, and I'd jump and I'd think he's talking to me, you know. I, I think he did it on purpose. But that's the idea that Peter has here. It's time that we wake up. He wants to stir us from our sleep. Because Peter knew that our minds have that tendency to get accustomed to the truth and take it for granted. You know, we say Jesus died for our sins and we know that's the truth, but do we take that for granted? Do we really realize that we were all sinners on our way to hell, but Jesus loved us so much that he gave his life for ours? He took upon himself the penalty that I deserve because of my sins. See, I pray that we never take that truth for granted, that it always stays fresh on our minds, what Jesus did for us. So Peter is saying here, listen and understand that our time on this earth is short. And then he refers uh, to our bodies as tents. He says, as long as I'm in this tent... Apostle Paul also liked to use the same term in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5.1. He 
He said, For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. See, a tent is not meant to be a permanent dwelling place. They wear out. They get torn up. They get battered. Same thing happens to our bodies. They get worn out. They get torn and battered. And um, some, of us, some of us may not look so bad on the outside, but all the stitching is coming uh, <laughs> done on the inside. The threads unravel. The, you know, the, the flaps get torn. The tent starts to leak. Now, surgically, some will try to, you know, lift the tent flaps to make it look a little bit better, you know, or they'll dye the threads that are unraveling. But, but the fact is, through the years, this temp- temporary thing we call our bodies will be subject to the ravages of time and decay until it's no longer a shelter anymore. Nothing we can do about it. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man once to die, but after this, the judgment. Peter knew that his time was short. He knew that it was temporary on earth. Verse 15 says, Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So he's saying, I want you to remember what I'm going to say to you even after I'm gone. That word for decease there, another word for death, it actually means the word exodus. I like that. It doesn't mean cease to exist. It means moving from one place to another. It says the late Billy Graham once said, Someday you'll read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. Exodus, leaving from one place to another. Just as we read in the book of Exodus that the children of Israel left uh, from Egypt to the promised land, Peter knew that he was leaving the earth for the ultimate promise in heaven. It's for the same reason why Moses, the only psalm he ever wrote, Psalm 90, said this, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Time is short. We don't know when the Lord's going to come back. We don't know when the Lord's going to take us home. It could be today. So we need to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. This brings us to our second point. Peter's saying that in light of his approaching death, he wants to bring before certain things to keep in remembrance. Number two, Jesus is real. And he brings the fact that that he was an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry. Look at verses 16 through 18. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now this is something that's very important for us to see. Peter says in verse 16, For we did not follow cunningly devised Fables. That word fables could also be translated myths. In the Greek language, it's the word muthos. Muthos, or, or myths, is myths, sounds like I have a list, it was always used in the New Testament in a negative or derogatory sense. And it's usually used in, with Greek mythology, pagan mythology, myths that are bizarre, ridiculous tales that really have no real historical significance. Let me give you an example. The story of Prometheus, who gave... Fire is a gift to mankind. Zeus found out about it, was so jealous that he had Prometheus chained to a rock in the Adriatic Sea and had vultures peck out his liver. It's a story, a myth. Or the story of Pandora who opened up her little vial, her vessel, and all the evils in the world jumped out. Or the story of, of Medusa who originally had golden hair and fell in love with Poseidon. And so Athena cursed her and where her hair was once gold and snakes came out. I mean, all these crazy non-historical fables or myths 
I was reading where the Norse god Thor first discovered his power. He was so excited he jumped from his horse and began jumped on his horse and began to ride across the sky on his horse, pointing down at the earth because he could cause a lightning to come off the end of his finger and flash across the earth. Spent the whole day because he was so excited about that, riding his horse through the skies, throwing thunderbolts all over the world. As he got back to the north country with a sense of power, he cried out, I'm Thor, I'm Thor, I'm Thor. His horse suddenly turned around and said, Well, you should have used a saddle, Philly. <laughs> Listen, stories, myths. Stories in the Bible are based on historical places, actual people, certain dates. Dates are often given. In other words, they are events that are verifiable events. The Bible is not a pack of lies. The Bible is not some fairy tale or some sort of Greek mythology. Peter's saying here, I was an eyewitness to some of the greatest things that Jesus did. And I'm telling you, he's real. It's true. It happened. And one of the biggest events that stood out to Peter, other than the cross, was the transfiguration. Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel all record the experience, though none of those were actually, the writers were actually participated in it. It was Peter who saw it all happen, James and John as well. But I love the whole scene there. Jesus invited his three friends up to the mountain there to, for a prayer meeting. Uh, he, Peter, James, and John with him, and they, they hiked up to the top. It's believed that it was Mount Hermon that was the high mountain since they had been in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Mount Hermon is on the north border of the Golan Heights and rises to a peak of over 9,000 feet. So it's no wonder by the time they got there that they all crashed. You know, they started snoozing. But as they're snoozing, suddenly, you know, they're woken up by the appearance of Jesus in his glorified body with Moses and Elijah on either side of him. Now, I, know, I don't know what you would think, but if, I, you know, if, you, if you were awakened from sleep only to see two famous dead people, I think you probably have died and gone to heaven. You know, I would think that. But there Jesus was with Moses and Elijah, and Jesus is shining like the sun, it says, and they're all talking among themselves about his impending death and resurrection from the cross. What a conversation it had to be. But Peter got so excited and just, just thrilled that he blurts out, it's good that we are here. I mean, think about that for a moment. Here is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Moses and Elijah are talking about the Lord's death and Peter stands up and says, it's good that we're here. Let's build three tabernacles. One for you, Moses. One for you, Elijah. And one for you, Jesus. There you go. Yeah, you wonder if Moses didn't turn to Jesus and go, who is this guy? Is he with you? Oh, that's Peter. He means well. I love the verses that introduce why Peter says what he says. And he said this because he did not know what to say. Not a good thing, you know? I found that there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who have something to say and those who have to say something. Peter seemed to always fall in the latter category. Solomon gave some... Uh, Free advice, he said in Proverbs 10:19. Too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. Peter didn't restrain his lips. But you, you can understand Peter's motivation. He's hanging out on a mountaintop with Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Why wouldn't you want that to last? Why wouldn't you want to stay there forever? That, that experience had a profound effect on Peter's life. What was the experience? What was the significance of the transfiguration? It confirmed Peter's testimony about Jesus Christ. Matthew sixteen thirteen. Jesus asked Peter, uh, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So when Peter saw the glory of the Lord 
So you heard the Father speak from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It confirmed that Jesus is who he said he was. So Peter's saying, I, I am an eyewitness of his majesty. I was there. Now some may say, well, you know, you know Peter and the boys, they were fishermen. And you know fishermen... I mean, I caught a fish that was this big. I mean, maybe they're telling the tale, you know. Maybe, maybe they, you know, but, but listen. We read Peter in John chapter 20. He's out there fishing again. And Jesus is on the shore. And Jesus asks him, hey, boys, did you catch anything? Then a miracle happened. A fisherman actually told the truth. He didn't say, you know, you know, you know, you know, he answered said, no, we've caught nothing, you know. He didn't say, we've caught a lot, you just can't see them, they're in the boat. Didn't say that. He didn't say, well, you should have seen the one that got away. No, he says, we've caught nothing. See, Peter was capable of telling the truth. And it was there that Jesus had cast the net into the right side of the boat. Peter recognized it was the Lord, and he got excited, jumped off the boat and swam to shore. My point is this, Peter and the rest of the disciples were so convinced Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior, that he was coming back, that they were willing to die for their belief. And they did. James was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. The Apostle John was placed in boiling oil but wouldn't fry. Thomas literally had his brains beat out. Others were slain in two. Now you think that if all this was a lie, a hoax, that one of them would have cracked, one of them would have broke down and said, it's not true, we got together and made this all up, but that's not the case. That Peter, who at one time denied the Lord three times, would 40 days later stand up in front of a crowd of, uh, of at least 3,000 people proclaiming Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. That Jesus was who he said he was, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as a result, many people believed. See, I believe it all goes back to Peter being an eyewitness to Jesus' majesty, his glory there on the mountain of transfiguration. John records it this way, his experience in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now here, in Second Peter, Peter doesn't completely finish the statement God made when he said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. But what is added in the Gospel account, the Lord says, Hear Him. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. Listen to Him. Listen up. My question to us this morning, are we listening? Because God is still speaking to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. God speaks through, through Jesus Christ even though He's not being transfigured before us right now. We don't see Him on a mountain and said we must behold Him by, by faith through the pages of His Word, through the Scriptures. Let me say, the Bible is not a myth. It's a historical fact that can be trusted. And that brings us to our third and final point. Remember, number one, time is short. Number two, Jesus is real. Number three, God's Word is is true. God's Word is true. This Bible we hold in our hands, the Word of God, a document that was composed over a 15-year time span from around 1400 B.C. to 90 A.D., 40 different authors that penned 66 books we call the Bible, and they came from all variety of walks of life. There were kings and peasants and fishermen and, and poets and statesmen and scholars and so on. The Bible was written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, Three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And yet, as we read this book, we see one unfolding story of God's love for man and His plan to redeem man back from the, from the dead spiritual condition they're in. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements only found in the Bible. No other religious book can be said of that. 
That is what Peter is telling us next. Look at verse 19. He says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Even after this incredible experience Peter had with Jesus there on the mountain and seeing his glory and hearing God's voice, verse 19 Peter says in the old King James, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Peter is saying the word of God is more sure than even, even what we experience. And I believe that as a Christian today that we cannot base our faith on subjective experiences, but we base our faith upon the word of God. Visions go, visions come, some are granted, some are not, but the Word of God abides forever. It's the solid rock of Scripture. And we may not be allowed to see Jesus transfigured before us, but we can all see Him and behold Him and hear Him on the pages of Scripture and obey Him with our lives. Hear Him, the voice of the Father says. We have the prophetic Word confirmed. Peter's saying, I know the Word of God is true because because of what I've read. Spiritual evidence. The Bible is confirming. I mean, as you look to the Word of God, we see confirmation of case after case of fulfilled prophecy. For God, yesterday is as today, tomorrow is as yesterday. It's all the same to Him. You know, I think of, of the movie Back to the Future, and they're going back from, to the 50s to the, to the you know, 80s and then to the 2000s and back and forth and going and trying to change time and, and change things. And listen, God has it all planned out. You know, you don't need Marty McFly and, and Biff to cause problems and Doc Brown with his hair all crazy. God's got it all figured out. It's all in His Word. No other book uh, dares to predict the future. Do you know that? you know why that is? Because if they tried to, they would fail. The reason that God can speak in the future with such accuracy is because our God is omniscient. He knows all things. Let me give you some examples. You find in God's Word the prediction that, the, that His people would be in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Then it happened. Same book is predicted that these people will eventually be in a 70-year captivity in Babylon. It happened. You know it's true. Isaiah 45 predicted that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed 100 years before the actual event took place. Same chapter, Isaiah 45, predicted that a man named Cyrus, named him specifically, the king would make a decree to allow the Jews to rebuild their temple. Before Cyrus is even a, a twinkle in his daddy's eye, his name was recorded in Scripture. He wouldn't come on the scene for another 160 years later. He's mentioned by the prophet Isaiah as he wrote down his name. God says in Isaiah 42.9, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. Book of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, God said this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, and whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi 3, 1. In other words, the Messiah would have a forerunner, someone who would come before him and announce who Jesus was. Some 475 years later, that was fulfilled in John the Baptist, John 1, 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There it is. There's the announcement. There's the fulfillment. The list can go on and on and on. Zechariah 9.9 prophesied that the Messiah would come into the city of Jerusalem lowly and riding on a donkey. Zechariah 11 verses 12 and 13 that the Messiah would be betrayed for exactly 30 pieces of silver. And that silver would be used to buy a potter's field. Psalm 22 predicts 
uh, exactly the way Jesus would die, piercing his hands and his feet, describing his death by, by crucifixion, a hundred of years before crucifixion was even invented. The Bible predicted that Jesus would rise from the dead. Psalm 16.10 For you will not leave my soul and she will know where you will allow your Holy One to see corruption. But there's more. That Jesus is coming for His church. God tells us in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Even more, 1 Thessalonians 4.16 and 17 We know this verse. We love this verse. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus shall we always be with the Lord. I can go on and on and on and on. Jesus is coming back. Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierce him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Two-thirds of our Bible is prophecy. Over 300 prophecies were fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus Christ down to the tiniest detail. Now to have those 300 fulfilled by any one man is beyond any mathematical probability and as Jesus fulfilled all of them, over 300. There's over 500 prophecies of his second coming which tells me it's a done deal. He's coming back. God has told us how the world's going to end. God has told us where the world is going to come to its final battle, the battle of Armageddon, the valley of Megiddo in Israel. The Bible has told us so many things that are happening in the news right now before our very eyes. That's why Peter can say, we have the prophetic word confirmed. What you do well to heed is a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Until the day dawns, what is he speaking of? I think he's speaking about what he has been speaking about, the second coming of Christ. One day Jesus will come back when he comes all spiritual darkness, social darkness, political darkness, moral darkness will give way to a bright day. Now what's interesting is that Peter tells us to heed God's word as a light that shines in a dark place. Does not God's word right now shine in the dark place that we're living in at this time? I mean, all you got to do is open it up to people who don't know the Lord and it shines right in their eyes, does it not? And they don't like it. Oh, it's too bright. And you tell them, well, you know, the Bible says, let me show you, all of sin have fallen short of the glory of God. Oh, I don't like that. It's too bright. Shut it off. Well, the Bible says, you know, the wages of sin is death. Oh, I don't like that. Get that out of my face. But the Bible says, the gift of God is eternal life. Oh, a gift? Eternal life? My sins forgiven? Shine that light over here. I, I want to see some more. Do you see how it works? See how it happens? It's Hebrews uh, 4.12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-headed sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Peter's saying, look to the word of God. Take heed to the word of God. Until, verse 19, the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You know, Jesus is called the bright and morning star in Revelation 22.16. Until he comes, his word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is the driving force going throughout the whole world, drawing men and women away from the ungodly worldly system and putting them in the arms of God. What a beautiful picture we have here. Jesus, our bright and morning star. And he goes on, look at verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. See, Peter's saying, time is short, 
Jesus is real and the word of God is absolutely true. We all know the scripture. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to quote it right. We all know the scripture, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what Peter's saying here. He says in verse 20, knowing that this verse, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. The word private interpretation, I think, is an unfortunate translation. I like how the New Living Translation puts it. It puts it, above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding. See, all Scripture is given by inspiration. It's God breathed into the prophets, into those recording God's history. They didn't fully know. They didn't understand at the time that they were putting together the very words of God for us to live by. Paul didn't sit down and go, you know, I think I'm going to write a bunch of letters to churches that are having problems so one day they can put them all together and put them in a book and call it the New Testament. No, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he recorded what God wanted him to say to these churches at that time that just so happened to apply to all of us some 2,000 years later. David wrote songs, and they became the Psalms. Solomon wrote down words of wisdom, they became Proverbs. Moses recorded the first five books of our Old Testament, which became the very foundation of the Word of God. Prophets wrote down what God was saying to them, but often they didn't understand it. I think of the one occasion in the book of Daniel, chapter 12. It says in verses 8 and 9, Daniel says, I heard what he said, but he did not understand what he meant. So I asked, how will all this finally end, my Lord? But he said, go now, Daniel, for what I have said is kept in secret and sealed until the time of the end. I mean, they were obedient and recording what God's word said, but often they didn't understand it. Now, there's another way of looking at verse 20. It says, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. In other words, no portion of Scripture should be interpreted apart from other references to the same subject. In other words, you can't take one verse out of God's Word and, and build a whole doctrine based on that one verse. If you can't confirm a doctrine with other Scriptures to back it up to support it, it's time to get a better doctrine. It's like riding a bike versus riding a unicycle. You know, if you've ever seen a person riding a unicycle, you've got to twist a little bit and turn a little bit you know, back and forth in order to stay balanced on one wheel. But a two-wheel bike, you know, it's, it's a lot easier. Four-wheel is even better. You know, you just stay balanced. But I've ridden unicycles before. I, I, I could ride a unicycle. In fact, I was years ago, I was trying to show off for my kids when they were little and copped in the unicycle and came down and sprained both my wrists. <laughs> Boom, down on my face. That's the danger of one will. Same thing is true, the danger of taking one verse out of the Bible, forming a doctrine out of it. Sometimes you have to twist it and turn it just to make it fit. Well, it's wonderful to have that wonderful, marvelous verse of Scripture, but if it tells a great truth, there's going to be two or three other verses, usually a whole chapter on it, somewhere in the Bible to balance it all out. So Peter is telling us that no passage of Scripture should be interpreted by itself. We need to confirm it with other Scriptures. See, Peter started out this morning by saying, I know you know these things, but I need to remind you of them. He said, you know, we know these things, but we need to be reminded of them. Remember he said in verse 13, I think it's right as long as I'm in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as the Lord Jesus showed me. I think very soon we're going to be putting off these tents. Jesus Christ is coming back. Not because I think so, because I have some private interpretation of one verse. I have many verses that point to the fact that Jesus is coming soon.
Listen, the world is getting darker each day. Evil is on the rise, but as we just read, we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. As the world gets darker and darker, the word of God is shining brighter and brighter in our hearts. How can we say this? Because of so many things we see happening in the world right now, it's exactly what the Bible said would be happening in the last days. Now, the Bible says in the book of Daniel that in the last days, knowledge would increase. Has that happened? You betcha. I mean, look at the internet and, and all the knowledge that we have at our fingertips. The Bible says in the book of Daniel in the last days that we'll travel to and fro. I mean, you know, you make it all the way across the Atlantic or the Pacific. You know, it, nothing. It's nothing. We're traveling all over the place. There'll be a one-world monetary system where we're quickly getting in that way. See, the Word of God predicted with great accuracy what the world would be like just prior to Jesus' second coming to this earth. And it appears to be describing the times in which we're living in right now. Same verses the Lord told Daniel to seal up until the last days are now making sense to us today. Let me tell you this, no other so-called holy book dares to deal with prophecy. Only this book we have in our hands has a bonus and the courage to deal with future events. That's why although men die, the word lives on. Although experiences fade, the word endures. That's why the world gets darker, the word shines brighter. I'm so thankful for the word of God. We have this book. Peter says, you do well to heed it. You know, look at that as we close. As you look at the current Middle East situation, it looks dark. It looks murky. Iran's insistence on establishing a military presence in Syria. Israel's insistence on preventing it. Then you throw Russia into the equation. Russia, for the first time in history, has formed an alliance with Iran and Turkey, which brings to mind God's word, shining light to Ezekiel 38 and 39. It said that God warns that Iran with Russia and a coalition of allies, including Turkey, Libya, Sudan, will go to war and will invade Israel sometime after Israel had been regathered into her land as a nation, which happened May 14, 1948. There'll be a war like no other war in history. This war will unleash a series of irreversible events which will change the world forever. God set aside two old chapters, not just one verse, two old chapters to warn mankind of this coming war. And even though the Bible warns invading armies will be ultimately destroyed by God, it will be a devastating war for both Israel and the whole world. See, as the world gets darker, God's word shines brighter. Because the Bible tells us in the last days the nation of Israel will not only be reborn, but there will be a stumbling block to all the nations around them. Are we not seeing that today? Zechariah 12, verse 2 and 4, 2, 4 says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all people. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. That's happening. See, as we see this happening around, we know the Word of God is getting brighter and brighter. It's coming to pass. Still not convinced, back in February, Israeli satellite discovered Russian stealth aircraft in Syria. They also discovered another Iranian military base in Syria, northeast of Damascus, where they have a warehouse full of, of short and medium-range missiles. The last time Israel discovered a military base around Damascus, back in September, they destroyed it within 48 hours of its discovery. Same base just so happened to be linked to chemical weapons. Man, it looks dark, it looks murky, but the Word of God is shining brightly. 
Isaiah 17, 1 says, Behold, Damascus will cease from, being, cease from being a city, and there'll be a ruinous heat. That hasn't happened yet. But man, there's a lot of turmoil going around Damascus. See, now more than ever, we need to take heed to what God's Word is telling us. God's Word is telling us we need, need to get the Word out. Jesus is coming soon. Prepare the way of the Lord. Get right with God today. Don't wait for another moment. Are you ready? Time is short. Jesus is real. God's word is true. If you're not ready, if Jesus were to come back for his church this morning, you would not go. I encourage you, get ready today. Don't wait another minute. Commit your life to Jesus Christ. Be born again today. Have your sin forgiven. And God will do that work in your life. I want to give you that opportunity this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for your word. We know it's true. We thank you that you are our Savior, that you died for us, that we have a real relationship with you as our King and as our Lord. And Lord, we thank you that our time is short here because, Lord, this world is getting darker and we long to be out of this place and to be in your presence. But Lord, we want to pray if there's anyone here that's not ready to go to be in your presence. They're not born again yet. Lord, we want to give them the opportunity to come to know you as their Lord and as their Savior. And so we pray, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that does not have that relationship with you, that they would turn to you today. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here you want to give your life to Jesus Christ this morning? You want to be born again today? If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? This is just between you and the Lord. Anybody at all? Jesus is calling. I hear it. <laughs> Knocking at your heart. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. We thank you for your word. We pray your blessing upon our week together, Lord. Help us to be a light that shines in this dark place, reflecting your light and love. Lord, we love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.